0: Hi, this is Paul Ford, and I'm the co-founder of Postlight, a digital product studio in New York City at 101 Fifth Avenue. And I'm joined by my co-founder, Richard Ziotti. Hi, Paul. Rich, what does PostLite do?
1: We are a digital product studio. We design, architect, and build platforms and the apps that uh, run on those platforms. The
0: things you see on the web, the things you hold in your hand when you're using a mobile device, we build those. Yes. And we're an engineering shop, but also a very serious design shop. Yes. So it's important that people know that we do both things. Yes, and we've
1: got an interesting guest today That's I thought did like two things, but as I dug into his background, he's done like 11 things incredibly well.
0: And you're talking about John Battelle, who I guess anyone who has looked at the title of this podcast probably knows that that's who we're talking to. You know, we should also let people know John Battelle was a client, he came to us very early in the ve- development of Postlight and had us build a website for his company, Nuco. Correct. And we recently attended his conference, the Nuco Shift Forum out in San Francisco. We talked about the fact that we were going out and hosting a drinks night in California. That's what that was about. So when we went out and we saw him, we said, John, you're an interesting fellow boy is he come on our podcast this is a guy who has been an internet entrepreneur as long as there's been internet entrepreneurship to happen but he is it's unusual because he's not a tech guy he's a media guy he may hate you for saying that no his roots his roots are in journalism i don't know roots I mean, yes so as he's built big tech platforms he has brought a kind of media understanding and he played a pretty critical role in the way that blogging went in 2000 to 2010, and he continues to play a pretty critical role in how people make money from writing and and making things on the internet. Yep. So let's talk to John. Great. John Battelle. Hello. John, it's great to have you here. It's good to be here. It's my first visit. Welcome to New York. Your complexion is excellent.
2: Well, my complexion reflects the fact that it was ski week
0: in California last Ah, year. There we go. So we should fully disclose at the outset that John is a client of Postlight. Yes. But that's one of only one of many, many fascinating, interesting (laughs) things that he's gotten up to in his career. Uh, And actually, as a client, um, you showed up early. It was great. Yeah, we were we were just a little baby. And uh, you're like, hey, Let's, let's build this thing. Yeah. And yeah. so we, we did some web work for you. So, And the thing, we were going to talk about the thing, yeah. is called NuCo. Yeah. That's right. That is what that is. We helped uh, build the website for NuCo. You know, we do an exercise sometimes that's really helpful for people who've had rich and varied careers, which is kind of go through the years a little bit. Mm. So let's say 1991. Let's start. One. Where were you in 91, 92.
2: In 91, I was in grad school. I had been a reporter covering the tech industry for a few years in the 80s, and uh, I realized I was never going to get anywhere unless I had an advanced degree proving that I could write about more than, you know, hard drive capacities and network speeds. So I went back to graduate school uh, at Berkeley in journalism, and uh, in 91, I was actually drafting my thesis proposal which was about a three-page summary of what became Wired.
0: So then on to Wired.
2: 92.
0: 92 was Wired. What were you at Wired?
2: Uh, The founding managing editor.
0: Okay, that's an unusual role. Yeah, yeah. What did did you do as a managing editor at Wired? Well,
1: before that, what's the thesis? What was the thesis down to two sentences?
2: uh, The rolling stone of technology. Perfect. Yeah, Um, that's what I wrote. I said that the world needs a... Magazine that covers what was happening culturally and technology the way Rolling Stone covered what was happening culturally in music in the late late sixties and and it was like you know thirty years later twenty five years later technology was rock and roll right yeah
0: cool it had that function early days too it
2: did and it had a group of people who believed that idea right um, and they just hadn't been united by a brand yet.
1: So how far into recreational drugs are you at this point? As deep as I ever got.
2: Yeah, that makes okay. sense. <laughs> fair, fair, know, fair. I was. It was, you know, 25 <laughs> years old, right? Um, I tried to not let it affect my uh, uh, ability to edit, but that was really what I did. I ran the uh, editorial of wired and, uh, and later. A
0: managing editor can't be too addicted to, to drugs. No, yeah. no. <laughs> I, I, as a matter of fact, I,
2: my, my job was, you know, not only to make the trains run on time and make sure all the pieces landed and got edited, but also I was a guy at the office when everyone would go to a rave or go to burning man. <laughs> so right. like, and it wasn't, it's just like, I was just so into the work. I mean, mm. you know, when you're 25, 26 years old, and you get to edit William Gibson, you know, or Neil Stevenson. Um, right. You're like, yeah, I'd rather do that than just about anything else. Right. right. If you're into editing, you're into writing and, and ideas. Uh, that was just a, the coolest place to be.
0: Sure. So that, that full dot-com wave, you wrote that. When did you leave yeah. Wired?
2: Well, I got an idea while I was at Wired. I ended up running um, business development as well. Mm-hmm. And the reason was because Lewis, the founder and CEO, uh, wanted somebody who was a product person to make decisions about what partnerships we were going to do. So as a biz dev guy, I saw a lot of proposals. I wrote a lot of proposals. Uh, and one of them that I wrote was for a weekly magazine covering the business of the Internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it just wasn't sexy enough for Wired, <laughs> to right. be honest. you know. Um, and so I left in 97 and started the
0: Industry Standard. Because I thought it was a good idea, <laughs> and the industry standard. I remember that was one of a couple publications that really rode the wave of yeah. that first dot com yeah. explosion.
2: Yeah, all the way over the crest and down onto the rocks. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> how, how long did that run? Uh, that was five years. How yeah. big
0: did that team get?
2: Uh, over four hundred. Yeah. Um, 120, wow. One hundred and twenty journalists. Um, you know, one hundred and twenty million in revenue in our um, penultimate year, profitable. Um, very profitable uh, with, you know, conference business, a research business, an online business and the print business, which was 80, 70, 80% of our revenues was print. But it was, yeah, I mean, it was a serious journalistic enterprise with, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of ads, like the most. It was a hurricane. Yeah. I mean, we had the most ads of any publication in the history of publishing and still hold the record because no one's ever going to, it's just, Unbelievable! You know, Never the bubble
0: would yeah. just needed a place to put stuff.
2: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I remember a board meeting uh, where uh, you know I was presenting the budget or something, and uh, and the, my board, which consisted mostly of people from IDG who owned the majority of the company uh, at the time. Uh, saying, you know, it's raining money and you don't have enough buckets. You need to make more buckets. Right. Start another magazine. We started several more magazines. We, you know, we started all these crazy ideas that didn't pan out. But um, it was a crazy time. And we were emblematic of that time. Although, uh, unlike most of the companies that were going public at the time, we had real revenue and real profit. Right. So 2001. That's when the spring. Yeah, that's when everything fell apart. Right. So where are you at that point? Yeah, 10 years from the first question. Um, 2001, I was uh, chairman of the Standard, um, and uh, the board had brought in a a, a guy to run it after I disagreed with the board about whether we should sell the company. And uh, I, after the bankruptcy of the Standard, I went to Berkeley. I went back to uh, the journalism school and taught there while I was developing a few other businesses. And that was probably the most productive three or four years of my life, Hmm. because while I was at Berkeley, I had the Bloomberg chair there, uh, so Mayor Bloomberg, uh, you know, kind of provided me a safe harbor in a storm at Berkeley. Um, But I developed the idea for Federated while I was developing a book that I wrote called The Search about Google and its impact on society and i also developed two conferences uh one of which i did with steve ratner here in new york called foursquare before there was a app called foursquare uh and a second i developed with tim o'reilly called web 2 which had as its thesis that the internet was in fact not over <laughs> that, that that was sort of a temporary you right. know pause that we all had from 01 to 03 but that in fact there was a second wave uh where the web would become a platform for an explosion of of new services and publishing and you know all sorts of uh you know new applications which proved out i remember going to web
0: 2 in the javits center and I'd been a sort of true believer. I was still pretty young, um, but I'd stuck in after 2001. Everybody else went home, and I was like, well, I'm going to still do web stuff, even though I'm making $22,000 a year. I, like, snuck in to Web (laughs) 2.0, and it was gigantic. Yeah, well, there were
2: two pieces to it. There was the convention kind of expo, which you you went to at Javits, and then there was the kind of high-end executive conference in San Francisco. Right, and we also did something in Moscone. We sort of did it New York, Moscone, and then also in Japan, and God knows where else. I was mostly focused on the executive conference where okay. we had 1,100 people in a palace hotel, and and I did all the programming, and I was the host and the you know kind of the the MC, if you will. And that's where I started doing uh, a lot of in depth kind of Charlie Rose-like interviews with leaders of the industry.
0: Where you sit, you get two comfy chairs, you're sitting in one, they're sitting right. in
2: the other. Right. And that I did that for eight years. Gotcha. Um, do
0: you strike me as a master of the executive comfy chair interview? It seems I like really done- enjoy that. <laughs> yeah. uh,
2: I do because, you know, uh, I found that um, I got to know these people, uh, having been a journalist for most of my life, uh, I'm always asking them questions sort of privately, and the answers are so much better than I've heard anywhere publicly, Right. right? And so my idea was, first of all, let's create an editorial framework for each of the events, right? Every year there'd be a new framework, a new question, a new sort of central thesis. And then let's see if we can get these guys to talk about that and in ways that were similar to what I heard offline, right? Mm -hmm. And and, uh, I think I developed maybe a reputation for getting people to say things that otherwise they wouldn't, but not necessarily controversial or... You know, trying to attack them or paint them in a corner, but just to get them to be a bit more honest about the bit. impact sure. of what they were doing I mean if you're Eric Schmidt and you're running Google. You need to think a little more broadly than, you know, whatever your next product is or whatever, you know, why Gmail is so cool.
0: One of the things I've learned just working with high-level execs is they start to actually minimize their language down to, like, single words. If they want (laughs) to do a PowerPoint where the word powerful is there and, like, a picture of the logo and they're like, any questions. Yeah, right. (laughs) That that is a perfect interaction for them because everything else introduces risk. Right, right. Yeah, and so,
2: so, you know, it was a great run and the, the event did very, very well. I think it came at a time when people wanted to believe again in the web and
1: and where 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 are we now? This is mid two thousands
2: to yeah. It's sort of down. right. Sort of. So this is a magic era. The, I mean, you're, aught, saying, you you know.
0: s- you're saying it's productive, but it, the search was a bestseller. It was right. a big deal. That
2: book. yeah, it was in twenty six countries. And, you
0: called yeah. me for that book. You read like some blog post and called yeah, me on I the did. blue. Yeah, that's right. I thought that was really cool. I think it's yeah. the first index I was ever in. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Che- I bought the book and yeah. then I checked the index. They checked the index, right? You have to do both. And then the, you're currently engaged in a conference business, which we'll talk about. So the conference yeah. stuff is set. The journalism theme is there. But the new thing you mentioned, which people may not know if they're listening, is federated. Right. What was federated? So the idea it?
2: there it came from uh, when I sold the book and, and had to write it, I was terrified. I had to find my voice and decide how I was going to tell the story. And it was a very big story. I wanted it to be symphonic. I didn't want it just to be another story about another startup. And so I wanted to tell the larger story of what was happening in culture when we had access to knowledge mm-hmm. um, at the level that Google brought. Uh, and in order to do that, I thought, well, probably the best thing to do was to start a blog. And that was 2000. Well, I'd, I'd started one in 01, but, uh, which made me a latecomer for early bloggers, but a very early you know, to the idea uh, otherwise. In 03, I started a, a, a site where I could write kind of sketches of things I was Working on uh, as I was reporting the book,
0: it was very early days for a journalist. For yeah. like non-journalists, made up the entirety of the internet. Right. For someone who could get paid writing, right. That was that was like a shocking thing that you would right. drop your w- and words and out the there. funny
2: thing is, is you know, I had underestimated the fact that you know at the standard and I guess at Wired, I had built an audience, people who knew my work, mm-hmm. and by about nine months to a year into doing Search Blog, the name of the site. I had an audience of three or four hundred thousand people coming every month. And, you know, having been a publisher, that was bigger than the audience of the industry standard. But this is the and thing.
0: Publishers didn't believe it. Right? right. Like you could see it and you were like, this doesn't line up with what what anyone's expecting. The economics are. of
2: publishing were such that this was very clearly, uh, you know, I looked around and I saw Ohm doing it. And I saw, you know, Pete Cashmore doing it, you know, which became Mashable. I mm-hmm. saw... Arrington do it, which became TechCrunch. I I I saw the guys boing boing, all friends of mine, doing it. You know, and they had over a million people coming to their site every month. And we all had the same problem, which was we didn't understand our audience, and we had no way of making money from them. Um, The presumption, uh, which I think is being questioned now, but back then was that there there's no way you could ask them to pay for it, the audience. So uh, people
0: thought maybe a tip jar. Could
2: Maybe work. a tip jar, but yeah. that didn't work, and the technology was a little janky back then so the the really the only thing you could do was ads and I understood that business pretty well, having you know done the standard uh, for a period of time uh, and sold a lot of ads so I thought, well wouldn't it be cool if we federated these audiences so that if I'm an ad buyer, I can get a you know three four five, six million technology people if I bought ads that ran across search Blog, TechCrunch, Mashable, Boing, Boing, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the idea for Federated. And it became, you know, we, at the uh, at the height of Federated, we had 3,500 different sites, um, all of them handpicked, all of them high quality in categories from, you know, women's interest to sports, to tech, to business, to, and so on. And that became a very big business. Right. Um, and uh, it kind of ushered in the social media era, because in order to sell Adds into that space, you needed to convince marketers that what this was a different kind of a medium. This was a medium that was really intimate where the, the authors and, and writers on on those sites had a, a real interactive engagement with their audience comments and you know trackbacks and you know all that open web stuff mattered. Uh, and so if you were going to bring your advertising into that space, you couldn't just push an ad in front of someone. You had to actually understand the, the space you were in and be responsive to it. And so we developed something at Federated in 05 or 06 uh, that we called conversational marketing or CM which uh, over three or four years evolved into content marketing mm-hmm. and uh, products that we created where there were actually uh, you know, pieces of content from the brands in the streams of the blogs. Sounds familiar? That's the Facebook newsfeed. The problem was we didn't, as a federation, have the resources to build what Facebook built. And by 2010 or 2011, it became very evident that Facebook was going to win and that small and medium-sized publishers were basically screwed. Um and large publishers were too, but they had huge cash flow and could probably figure out what to do about this problem more than like someone who had five hundred thousand readers and was writing about, you know, mountain bikes, right? Mm-hmm. So federated, you know, while I think we pioneered a lot of things, we started a glide path towards obscurity by about twenty eleven, twenty twelve. It was clear all of us who were running it knew it was going that way. So what do you do? You, you know, sell it. <laughs> you know, get out. But we had acquired uh, we acquired five or six companies, but one of the one the the, the jewel that we acquired was called uh, Legit, uh, and it was a programmatic advertising business. And I, you know, we bought that company because we saw where advertising was going, at least traditional internet advertising, and it was clear that we did not need a lot of salespeople, and we did not only need a lot of ad ops people, which is both of which we had. Because the computers were going to do all of that.
0: Define for the people listening to this, define programmatic and define ad ops. Yeah. Those are going to be new terms.
2: Right. So programmatic advertising is essentially um, advertising that is slotted based on parameterization, based on data. Um, it's robots buying ads. Robots buying ads. And it turns out, uh, at least in the first half of the ad tech revolution, the programmatic revolution, it's robots looking at ads. <laughs> fraud. Yeah, that's that's um, the problem too. Uh and you know, wherever there's economic incentive and open systems, you know, fraud will flourish until the industry decides to uh address it. And the the incentives are so misaligned that for four or five, six years no one cared as long as the KPIs, the key performance indicators that the agencies bought ads on were being checked.
0: So just people are seeing, like, enough clicks came through. Enough
2: clicks, and enough views of the video, enough whatever. But it turns added, out that robots were actually clicking or looking at the videos.
0: But the ad agency is reporting back to the big brand. Right. You know, the toilet paper company. Yeah, like,
2: They're like, hey, man, it's working. Right? Yeah,
0: hundreds of thousands of people are clicking on right. this toilet paper exactly. ad and watching so, the, the yeah. cool video. And then
2: everyone looks at the Charmin sales, and uh, they're up by a point. Well, that's just because Cl- they were up by a point, not because of the ads, right? But we bought this company, you know, is when it was doing $11 million in sales. and This it, is legit. Yeah, and, okay. it,
0: and, and it just kept growing. It, so legit had like a platform. There's a database, there's an interface mm-hmm. you can say, you can go there with an ad and it, say, it, I want to put this ad on the internet. Right, well,
2: what it, what legit was was an exchange. Okay. Uh, so a supply-driven exchange, supply being inventory by publishers. Okay. And it focused on the guys that I care the most about, small and medium-sized publishers. Okay, and so it, I'm
0: boing-boing. And I can say, I, I can say to you, like, I have these rectangles. Right. There's nothing in them. Mm-hmm. And Legit will go out and automatically put stuff in Automatically
2: there. fill those with ads. Now, okay. in the beginning, those were now Was there anything lower. like this at the time? There, w- there were several. As a matter of fact, we bought Legit probably months after Google had bought AdMeld, which was a very similar uh, platform. Uh, and, well, and DoubleClick was around, too. Right? right. Well, and then they combined it with DoubleClick. So we had a piece of what was the overall programmatic ecosystem. And our piece was known as a supply-side platform, but also an exchange, which is the place where the deal is done. And this just kept growing and growing and growing as more and more you know, demand-side buyers, usually agencies on behalf of marketers – Demand side buyers found the efficiencies of using programmatic as opposed to, you know, going out and getting your nails done. And, you know, like all the costs of sales started. Yeah, sure. You don't have to buy anybody. You have, no, you just, you set the parameters and all the inventories out there and you can buy audiences as opposed to buying a site, mm-hmm. right? Or a publication.
0: Well, that's really what changed, right? You mm-hmm. federated sold a bundle of publications property. and yeah. you saw the logos on the federated yep. website. It's like, here's yep. boing, boing. Yep. Here's, you know, all these various sites. Yep. Um, like Deuce and so on right. that were out there. And so that's what you were buying. We sold book.
2: voice. We sold point of view. We sold yeah. traditional magazine values.
0: But you, it yeah. wasn't, it was about these cool brands. But
2: we bought this other platform as a hedge knowing that audience buying was the wave of the future knowing that automated audience buying based on data was the wave of the future
0: but this has been the struggle in publishing ever since because suddenly places that had built these extraordinary brands where you could go buy someone a steak dinner and say give me a hundred thousand dollars and i'll give you space in my thing exactly suddenly everybody was coming to them and saying i need 18 to 35 year olds what do you got and prove it
2: Right. And prove it. And by the way, instead of paying you $10 CPM, I'm going to pay you 80 cents. That's right. And the reason I'm paying you 80 cents is because I can find 18 to 34 year olds across the entire internet for 80 cents. So you have to be an 80 cent bid or I'm not going to take it. And we've been fighting that ever since. And to me, the way you fight that is with data. Mm-hmm. You say, I can prove that I've got better 18 to 34-year-olds than you, and the way I can prove that is the conversion and the the engagement and this, that, and the other. But you need data parameters to prove that, and that means you need a more sophisticated programmatic ecosystem. And as we've been building that in the industry, in the programmatic industry, Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, you know, all the platforms, Google, have kind of consolidated what's known as people-based marketing, real people-based marketing. And four years ago I joined the board of a company called Axiom, which is in so that spell business. that for the audience. Yeah, A-C-X-I-O-M. Okay. It's not an easy one. Um, but I think still we're 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 in a process of getting back to where brands reflect true audiences and true engagement.
0: And when you say people-based marketing, are you talking then about like an individual? Like yes. okay, so when when Google is doing people-based marketing, it's saying Oh, hey, Battelle just did a search. Right. Okay.
2: And, and Battelle falls into this, you know, double-hashed anonymous category. Sure, and right. So I can sell you, you know, 100,000 Battelles, right. you know, who all are auto-intenders or who are all this, that, or the other thing that a marketer might want. And
0: Toyota's on the other side going, boy, I need some Battelles. Yeah, well, and
2: the reason Facebook took off and its revenues have been sort of the most extraordinary story in media in the last 20 years is that they had real people and they could prove it. Right. Sure. And, and And that was very... In fact, very, that's the product. Yeah. That, the, that we are the product, of yeah. course. But the problem with Facebook is that it is a walled garden. It's a closed system, and marketers like to reach people everywhere, and they want to know, well, if I got Paul Ford on Facebook, I also want to re engage paul ford on that little mountain biking blog that he's visiting
0: yeah i gotta hit that guy seven times i gotta hit guy? him seven yeah. guys
2: seven times in four different environments right. and otherwise you try won't. to do that you see some of that you, you see, see some the, of that but it's it's just moving along and and so yeah. the two companies that i'm involved with that are very deep in that space one of them is what we spun out of federated we sold the assets of federated but kept the capital structure and what was legit, but had become a a unit of federated. And we spun that out and called it Sovereign. And I'm chairman of that company.
0: Spell that one.
2: S-O-V-R-N. And that is one of those, you know, Sovereign. The idea was that if you're a publisher, you have Sovereign territory, your Mm -hmm. own domain. um, And it's your data and your customers your readers and you have a right to understand them as well as advertisers do
0: it is funny how url spelling can kind of do carbon dating yeah, when a company was exactly, founded, right <laughs> a lot of a lot of vowels went to val heaven in the, the late 2000s well
2: you just couldn't get the you couldn't get the uh domain if it had an i and an e in it or even a g so <laughs> we just did s-o-v-r-n but the idea was to level the playing field for small to mid-sized publishers by acting like we were advertisers. Hmm. But in fact, what we do is take the data from the publishers and, and use it to create higher value for those publishers. And that's still around today. It's oh, over. it's growing like crazy. It's, uh, it, you know, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but what the hell. It's well over $100 million in revenues now. That's great. And it's, it's been profitable for 10 straight quarters at both cash flow and EBITDA profitable. And it's growing at uh, 50 to 60% a year. Wow. And, and, and then now on big numbers. And I think the reason is, is because human beings love stories. And great storytellers love the internet. And they create sites where they tell their stories. And it, for a period of the last, really, five to ten years, it's not been particularly profitable to do that, to, to start a site and just try sure. to be a small publisher. Um, but I think that the tides are starting to turn because I think advertisers are realizing that they can't only live in Facebook. And publishers are getting more sophisticated about how do I represent the audience that I've got in that massive, you know, computer-driven sort of Nasdaq stock market of advertising that is now dominated by programmatic. And our mission at Sovereign is to is to help publishers succeed. It's really just simple. Our only customer are publishers, um, and, so, and I think by focusing on that, it's really helped us succeed. So
1: to, to hear that, I mean, we 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 talk to other thought leaders and there's a sentiment out there by some pretty influential people, very successful people that believe that the centralization of what is the internet is inevitable. There Mm. are going to be five or six platforms, three or four or five silos Mm -hmm. and everything will emanate from those places. Yeah.
2: Kind of the network television view of the internet. That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, I disagree. Um, I don't want to live in that world. Um, I think the beauty of the internet is that, is that anyone could put out a shingle. if I'm like you know a freshman at Harvard and I have an idea for, mm-hmm. uh, for a Facebook and I can put out a shingle and everyone can find me um, with equal access, that is an innovative you know, ecosystem. Uh, If instead I have to fight for shelf space on one of three or four or five platforms, Mm -hmm. that's not an innovative ecosystem. And so while I think that it's inevitable that the Internet will trend towards oligarchy for a period of time, I think it's also inevitable that will fall apart. That's... It's reassuring to hear that. I think we
1: share that sentiment. I mean, you're talking about the web and and the open web.
2: And And by the way, we also had the whole Apple app. Well, there's that, right? Like mass hallucination. Well, that
0: was supposed to kill the web. All these things are supposed to kill the web. Yeah. Yeah. And the web just sort of gets more difficult to build big things upon, but also faster and weirder and stranger every day.
1: Yeah. it's sort of that top layer of bacteria. Like <laughs> yeah. if you keep taking the antibiotics, eventually there's that strain that just right, won't can't kill. Well, and that's that's what that's my hope. That's my optimism.
2: Um, and it, and it,
1: you're optimistic. That's a sentiment. But what yeah. do you? I, I mean, let's park the optimism for a second and just looking at the hard realities of how things have become very centralized. Yeah. You know, you do have young people who don't. The the browser isn't that sort of generic sort of non commercial tool that you use as a window to right. all these other places, but rather you start inside the you start inside that commercial experience, right? Right.
2: right. You, well, I, I mean, I think they start inside the the mobile phone screen. Yeah, that's kind of the browser now, right? Yeah. and 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 so and browsers commoditize. I mean, they you know they're sure. they're tools to get to information and experiences and services. And so we had the sort of app revolution. And I think what, what one of the things that, that makes me optimistic is the rise of what's called deep linking. And uh, I spent a lot of time staring at that in sort of 2010, 2011. And... You know, deep linking is now a fact of life. When you hit a link, it used to bring up a mobile browser. Now it brings up an app for the most part. Right. It'll sniff out. Right. And so that idea that you can jump around from service to service, that the fact that you jump from one service to another, the refer, is uh, trackable and knowable so people can build businesses understanding the flows of people from one place to another, Mm -hmm. um, I think augurs a new open web. If you think of those terms in a more sort of Catholic, uh, you know, representation as opposed to, you know, sort of structural or fundamentalist, like, well, it has to be a browser, it has to be a URL. No, it doesn't. Right, it just trying. has to work like the web works, which is you jump around from place to place. Value goes where attention goes, uh, and 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 data follows it, so that you can understand the the business case. Um, I think that's happening with apps and I think the you know the opportunity to create breakout services breakout media uh, still exists and will continue to exist hmm. um, but it, it requires a certain fluidity that you know the first version of the web did not in other words, if you want to be successful as a publisher you have to understand you know those platforms you have to know how do I exist in if in, in the case of nuco as a business related publication how do I look and exist in LinkedIn? How do I look and exist in Facebook and in Twitter? And I haven't done Snapchat yet for Nuco because I'm not sure that really is a a channel for us. (laughs) Not the audience. But yeah, not the audience yet. But, um, uh, you know, there are several platforms that we just have to think about how do we live there natively. And one of the things, for example, that Sovereign's doing because it's a pain point of publishers is we're making it possible to take a piece of content and write it once and publish it across every platform whether it's google amp or facebook instant articles or linkedin or wherever um and that's just something that if you're a two-person shop doing a mountain biking site you don't have the bandwidth to to do all of those things but that's why companies like sovereign exist right you you to say you write that great thing about you know great piece about the new klein mountain bike And we can make it shine in Snapchat. We can make it shine in Google. We can make it shine, you know, wherever you want it. And you don't
1: care about where the origination point is.
2: No, the key, and I think this is something that the platforms are starting to come to terms with, the key is what are the economic terms upon which uh, the trade occurs. So if that post, for whatever reason, you know, gets 40,000 views in Facebook, and Facebook makes, you know, 40 bucks from that, Mm -hmm. how much does the publisher get? And right. that piece has not been worked out yet. Um, I think, the, the, you know, the large companies, the Hearsts and the Time Inks and the New York Times, are, you know, pulling their hair out trying to figure out, you know, can I oh, mo- yeah. can I model what I'm getting from my Facebook distribution channel? And and you know, I've been arguing with people at Facebook that these need to become economic certainties, and the value needs to accrue more to the creator of content, who is the person who. Draws and engages the audience than the past 10 years have seen, right? I mean, it used to be that the trade was, well, Facebook will drive a shit ton of traffic to you and you can monetize it on your site. That turned out that, you know, you would make pennies on that. Sure. And Facebook traffic was just not particularly good traffic.
1: They don't, they, I mean, to this day, the hyperlink out of Facebook
2: is a second class citizen, right? Uh It's, and and, uh, you, and it's a third class. that an inside Facebook. Sure, oh, it's, right, it's yeah, a disaster, you know. right? Okay. Uh, but I think that they're going to realize that, in fact, over time, the Facebook's not in the business of creating engaging content.
0: They're uh, not great at it.
2: No, Damn. and 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 so I think that the trade has to be more fair. Well, and they're I think piggybacking they're working on that.
1: They're, they are. That's interesting to hear. That is that is a sentiment inside of Facebook. Yeah, I really believe that it is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's promising to hear. And it's also
2: being driven by marketers who are saying, you know, I'm finding that the engagement with the publisher Mm -hmm. is of higher value than the engagement on Facebook, except for certain types of transactions, which are generally understood to be direct response.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Interesting. But if I need to
2: build a brand, mm -hmm. I need to build a brand where hearts and souls and minds are changed. And that's at the point of engagement with publishing content.
0: Not necessarily on top of your grandma's. We, yeah, I mean, I feel like when
2: we when we all decided magazines were over, because I'm kind of at my core a magazine guy, we threw out like the entire baby, you know, uh, <laughs> and and we forgot that what magazines are is a lens on human experience that people trust. Sure. You know, that they say, oh, I ascribe to that point of view about that experience, Right. And that point of view about that experience, it's interesting because it fractured into, for a while, influencer marketing. So, you know, hey, I'm a hot shot, you know, young you know, millennial uh, female who has a huge Instagram follower. And so you saw a bunch of federated like models spring up in the last five years that federated not websites, but people who had large Instagram followings or large Vine followings or large YouTube followings. And would sell marketers into those channels, right. and I still think that's a, that's an important part of the ecosystem. But and the content that those people create is similar to you know bloggers in in 2000 to 2010. But overall, long term, you know, brands outlive human beings. You know, as the face of the brand, right? So the idea that, you know, someone who's a 22-year-old Instagram star is going to turn 32 and no longer be an Instagram right. star. She's going to get married and settle down and have a different point of view. So brands outlive the face, right, and become hmm. a, a trust trusted source. So I think there's an opportunity for, for these brands to reemerge. Is it
1: safe to say that the state of affairs today haven't created an environment for them to flourish? We're not there. It's well, a tough place right yeah,
2: now. Yeah, it is a tough place, except, I mean, I have to say, you know, I've been chairman of Sovereign since we spun it out um, three, three, four years ago. And I was the guy in the boardroom saying, we're screwed. Yeah. You know, like, look at the trend lines here. Everyone's sure. spending in Facebook, and Google is basically chasing that spend as well. Throw and, out the and, baby, throw out the yeah, bathroom. And, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, I know we have 25,000 publishers, right. but, but they all have their own individual sites. And, you, you know, we got to come up with a strategy to, you know, we can ride this programmatic wave for a while, but everyone's going to wake up and say, oh, I'm just going to move all my budget to Facebook. Sure. Right? And it just has not happened. And I think that the reason it has not happened is because these individual sites have a lot of value. And we've seen uh, our average CPMs go up by three to four times over the last three years. Now we started at a small base. Okay, we started at sixty cents, seventy cents, but it's going up to two or three dollars.
0: So up. marketers want to talk to people outside of Facebook. That is a reality that you experience I think it's about Absolutely. the relationship. Sure. Right? Yeah, the sure. relationship between those and individuals the context. And those and I wrote
2: a piece a while ago that got some pickup, but I, I still believe it. We lost context. And by we I mean the advertising marketing community lost context. You know what is the context of Facebook? It's not a place where people are changing their hearts and minds. It's a place where people are engaging with their friends and looking. True, at- But they're
0: not obsessively figuring out which camera to buy. No. And it's the, not where it's, You go. It's, no. they also
1: kill time on the toilet. That's a big part of it. I think it's a time killer. Yeah. It's just the yeah. thing you're waiting at the doctor's
0: office. Yeah. You just open the thing up right. and just blindly... Right. Right. But you're not creating that community with an extreme sense of intent. Like right. the, that, and when you think about camera websites on right. the internet where people talk about lenses obsessively, exactly. oh. and then you're obviously going to advertise your lens there. Right. That's a, you get a much better bang for your right. buck. and then trying to find people who may buy a camera. So the
2: question is, is there a way to get that ad for that camera lens on the right site without having to have a supply chain of ad salespeople and advertising operations people who slot the ad and make sure that the right number of impressions that were purchased actually happen. Mm -hmm. Can we automate all of that so the efficiencies go to the point where, uh, once again, the majority of the economic value accrues to the publisher and not to the people in the middle?
0: So the people listening, I mean, they're... And by the way,
2: the largest person in the middle for a long period of time was Facebook or Google.
0: When you look at this ecosystem, the number of middlemen is ridiculous. Like there's somebody taking a half penny off of everything all the way through. There's a chart by uh, Luma Partners, right. which they're downstairs from us. Right. And it's uh, <laughs> it's a famous chart where you just see it's like 100 companies right. that your ad might go through. So a little bit earlier, you mentioned Nuco. Yeah. And we should talk about Nuco. Yeah. What is Nuco? Uh, Nuco started sort of as a side project, a
1: crazy idea that I had. By the way, your life is effectively about... 11 side
2: projects. (laughs) It kind (laughs) of (laughs) is.
1: Everything's a side project that, like,
2: you know, sort of like a kid who keeps tugging on my pant leg. Um, (laughs) And that's what NuCo was. I was uh, in the midst of trying to figure out Federated in 2012, 2013. And a friend of mine came up to me. I had stopped doing Web 2 because I sort of thought that that brand had played out and I wanted to sort of go out while it was still doing well. So I just ceased operations and decided not to do it and the event drew a lot of people to one place at one time and a friend of mine came up to me and said we you got to keep doing events something you know and I'm like I know I don't I want to stop and he said well wouldn't it be cool if instead of bringing people into a ballroom like you know there was an event where you could go out and check out the companies where their headquarters are and meet the founders in their native space. So let's
0: get out of the Sheraton.
2: Get out of the Sheraton and get into, like instead of seeing some CEO of some hot shit startup, you know, pitching it from the stage. where go you, there. You learn nothing. And if you are one of the guys that elbows your way to the front to meet the person after the talk, they don't want to talk to you because you're like one of those guys with the sharp elbows. So they don't they think you're crazy. But wouldn't it be cool <laughs> if instead you could go inside and, and this was, came from the fact that I had kind of a privileged position if I could call, if a company like, you know, Facebook in 2007 was doing well, I could literally email Mark and say, can I come check you out? Yeah. And then I'd go inside and I'd see what was on the walls and meet the people there. Sure. And, and that's such a richer experience than hearing Mark for 20 minutes on stage somewhere. And uh, he's like, wouldn't that be cool? Kind of like an artist open studio, but for like cool companies. And I I, I thought... That's a crazy dumb idea that will never work um, because the logistics alone, you know, a hundred companies opening their doors in in one city in one day, right? I mean, how do you do a hundred events at at the same time? But I couldn't stop thinking about it. And Mm. so I figured the logistics out and I found some software that could make it possible. I use music festival software because there's interesting because during a music festival, there's 10 bands playing at any given time. And so I thought, ah, well, have ten companies opening the doors at any given time.
0: People you have to pick a the, schedule. Do you remember the name of the music festival software? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, Do Stuff. Do Stuff. Okay, that's yeah. now we know. Now everybody knows that. Yeah. They, okay. But but
2: then Do Stuff stopped doing that. So then now we work with a great company called Sked, which does okay, the same thing. Sure. Um, and so in any case, uh, I, just as a side project for no business purpose whatsoever, because I couldn't figure out how to turn it into a business, um, and I'm t- quite honestly, not sure entirely. I can even now, because, <laughs> but um, but anyways, we did it in San Francisco just on, as a lark, and people loved it. It's fun to be nosy. It's fun yeah. to go
0: see the. What's on the walls yeah, and right. what it kind is. of floors they have. And
2: other people came from other cities to the San Francisco one. And then they came up to me afterwards and said, Can we do it in our city? And I'm like, Sure. Sure. Just don't expect me to pay you. Right. You know, I mean, you guys figure out the economics, but here's how we did it. So sort you have of, this
0: very light franchisee model. We have so a very right.
2: light franchisee model and it just keeps growing. It just won't die. You know, so like, you know, Shanghai and and Toronto and, and, and Chicago and Miami and, you know, Boston and um, just all these new cities in the last. You know, year or so.
0: So NuCo is basically an idea and you're providing some coordination.
2: Right well what happened was last year I realized that the festivals as awesome as they are as an experience are not incredibly great businesses mm-hmm. at scale. Like I couldn't get GE to give me a lot of money as a sponsor to sponsor eight cities in the United States and five cities internationally because it's a distributed event. So right. there's not a thousand people in Nobody's one place where they can the put the post. banner up and yeah. you know and give the commercial you know to those thousand people where the sponsor comes up and talks about right. how awesome GE is.
0: So even though I mean there's a there is a way to get, make value for GE out of all these experiences, but, but they had to work too hard. To yeah, be honest. that's you that's know, the thing. Yeah, okay. and
2: so and so we uh, you know given that I don't know how to do anything else, I'm like well. What's the big narrative? Like, why are all these new kinds of companies emerging in cities around the world? What's happening in a larger sense to our ecosystem? Find
0: new and here. What's a new kind of company?
2: It's a new approach to running a business. And so the new approach, I think, at its core is that a company is driven not by the pursuit of profit or the extraction of capital, but rather by the pursuit of a larger mission that makes the world a tiny little better place. In, mm-hmm. in some cases, like a co- like Tesla, it makes the world a lot better place. And, and I thought about all the companies that I really kind of vibed with that I loved and they all had that at their core some purpose some mission right and the tech industry really started that way I mean you know Steve Jobs and the Bicycle for the Mind and Google and even
0: before that Homebrew Computer Club was just people putting wires into other wires and saying let's see what happens and
2: I think that the tech industry was the first explosion of a new approach to doing business and it turns out it's not just about the mission though that was paramount it was also about the way the company was run how it was managed the idea that the people were the core asset of the business not the access to markets or the distribution or the commodities that had been cornered so that you could you know i cornered the rubber market so now i can make good your tires right it was no my mission the people are drawn to that mission, and the people are the core assets. So the, a new approach to talent, a new approach to management, and a new approach to partnership, uh, which was more tilted towards the open uh, as opposed to the closed. And so I kind of wrote a manifesto about that. And I thought, there's got to be a media brand around that. And so last year, that's what we started. I called the brand shift. It's a new co shift. And it's the shift in capitalism from one approach to capitalism where the true north is maximize shareholder value to a new approach to capitalism where the true north is make the world a little better. Right. And so it's I, I call it the Maslow's hierarchy. Like, you know, okay, we made the profit bar. That can't be the only thing. Sure. You have to have profit so that you can be a business. But what next? So, right. good.
0: I mean, a canonical example of a nuco then is like a Etsy, mm-hmm. which is incorporated as a B corporation. Oh, right. It's not. It's 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 explicitly almost said.
2: all B corps are newcos. Right. They, yeah. It,
0: there's an explicit statement that you are not motivated by profit first, and right. that the company isn't obligated to maximize profits.
2: And that is actually a structural governance in the shareholder agreement. So yep. shareholders can't sue a company for not maximizing profits. Right.
0: So that's and a different DNA for a corporation. That
2: is a different DNA. And, and I think that DNA, whether or not they become an actual B Corp, that DNA is starting to spread throughout all sorts of big companies. And that's why I did the shift forum a few weeks ago, was to sort of bring together companies that are getting the sense that maybe there is a new way of, of, of prosecuting capitalism. And you see this at Unilever, you see it at Walmart, you see it at GE, you see it at very large companies that are realizing, I can't hire the hotshot 24-year-olds out of business school anymore because they all want to go work at codes. They want to work at a place that has more than profit at the center, mm-hmm. where they can wake up in the morning and go, you know, what I'm doing at Etsy or The Honest Company or whatever feels like I'm adding value to the world. I'm not just trying to sell more soap or trying to, you know um, you know, move more cars. I'm actually trying to, you know, fix some things that are systemically broken in the way our economy works. Sure. Um, and I think that's a very good thing, and it's worth celebrating. And so now NUCO is really about telling those stories and convening those conversations.
0: And what? tell me a little bit about the media wing of this.
2: So, I mean, we're small, but we're growing, you know. I mean— A few months ago, our average readership was about 300,000, and this month it's over a million. Um, And, you know, we're curating stories that are very similar to what I did at Wired. You know, we didn't write many of our own stories at Wired. We went out and found people who had things to say. And to that end, Medium has been a great place to be because Medium's sort of a place where people who have something to say tend to go and just say it. They don't want the overhead of, I got to start a blog and run a blog and feed the blog. But, you know, I'm the CEO of Ford and I want to announce my autonomous vehicle, you mm-hmm. know, initiative. So I'm going to go to Medium and announce it there. Sure. And then I pounce on that and say, hey, dude, let's run that in our publication, Right. Or I'm the CTO of the U.S. government and I want to talk about digital initiatives and and, and how we need to change the idea of service in the government. I'm like, hey, Megan, run that with us, right? Or I'm a shareholder of Uber and I want to talk about how that company is failing the core values of what it should be paying attention to in terms of its constituents, its drivers, its employees, and so on. I'm going to write an open letter to the board of Uber as a shareholder And I was was like, hey, run that with us, because all those stories are part of this shift in capitalism. So NUCO Shift has become a place to find those stories, you know, and and understand a a particular point of view about about business.
0: What's next for NUCO?
2: well we just did this shift forum which was to me a proof point like can you make that narrative which is complicated because it involves large companies startups policy uh you know all sorts of different ideas brought together is there a community that cares about this change in capitalism if so we should be able to bring that community together and have a conversation and if that conversation sucked then You know, we don't really have a brand, but it was awesome. (laughs) So we'll we'll definitely be doing that again, and we may be doing more of them in cities around the world. That model works from a sponsorship standpoint. So, so
0: the the theme was essentially new co ethos as opposed to technology. Our our kind of
2: tagline was capitalism at a crossroads. You know,
0: it's always at a crossroads, but okay. But today's crossroads, (laughs) yeah,
2: today's crossroads. You know, which I think is a bigger narrative, right? I think everyone thought that change equals digital change equals tech right and you know our argument is no actually innovation and change well that is constant but right now we're in the middle of a really big renegotiation Of the social contract with business like what do we expect of business before we expected business to deliver shareholder value Mm -hmm. now we expect business to solve really big problems that are hard to solve simply with the institutions of government or religious uh, organizations or you know civic organizations or ngos Business is the most nimble engine of change that we have in our society, and so we should expect more of it. And again, the technology roots are key because I think the technology industry has gained so much power and so much data and information but has not yet accepted the mantle of responsibility.
0: Oh, it truly has and, not.
2: And, yeah. and, and so that was a major part of the conversation at the Shift Forum. Uh, and a big part of my writing over the last couple of years has been on that theme. But what I loved about that forum was the leaders of the tech industry who were there accepted it. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, And and the beauty, of of course, it doesn't hurt to have Donald Trump as president because he had. Well, uh, it does, John. Well, it hurts a lot, but it doesn't hurt in (laughs) terms of pushing this conversation forward, because uh, I had all these incredible people coming as speakers. But when Trump, he dropped the immigration ban on the Friday before the conference started. And then you had Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft, who filed the amicus brief against it with 150 signatories um, of the entire industry, Facebook, Uber, everybody. So we could talk about, wow, you went out on a limb. You said, you know, you basically flew the bird to the president, you know, as an industry. Are you going to continue that? You know, what's your point of view going to be on net neutrality? What's your point of view going to be on, you know, taxation and repatriation of capital from, you know, uh, offshore havens and so on? You could start to talk about taking responsibility. What's your point of view on on privacy? What's your point of view? You know, and those conversations, the industry has been relatively hesitant to take a strong point of view. But if business is indeed going to become purpose driven, it means it has to have a point of view. And and that is what was explicitly on display at the shift forum.
0: All right, so any other side projects nipping at your heels? <laughs> There's three other businesses we need to walk
2: through. Um, none that I want to uh, attest to at the moment. But, but the answer is yes. Yeah, yeah. Small tidbit, uh, John plays drums. Oh yeah, well I'm, I, I, I had my midlife crisis about eight years ago and I decided that I hadn't learned anything new um and i was you know relatively um I'd had a few drinks with a friend at a party and he said, Hey, I've got a music studio. He's renting a place nearby and he said it has a music studio and he played like guitar in a band in college. And I'm like, I have never played an instrument in my life, I don't know anything. He's like, It has a drum kit, you could play that. There you go. <laughs> and oh, it turns no out I had I had time. I didn't know it, but I had time and so I, I you know, YouTube taught me how to play. There you go. And uh and now I play you know, at least two, three times a week and it's you know, it's an awesome out. It's an awesome outlet. He's terribly well rounded. Do you perform?
0: Can people come see you play drums? We don't play.
2: We don't play out a lot. Um, we've had some band drama of late. Um, oh, as all bands, even do. dad bands. Yeah, have even, bands. even even dad bands have drama. But but we have played out and uh, successfully, I would say. Um, and uh, it's just a lot of fun. What's you know? the name of the band? Uh, after. Uh, okay. and, and we named it, Whoa. so you, you, sh-
0: you should, own, we
2: usually play after putting the kids to bed and, you know, <laughs> after doing the work you need to do. So we usually start at like 10. Tell a different right. story yeah. about the name. No, again. no, no. Well, the, 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 the real truth is you should not listen to us until after you've had three drinks. Right. All right. Fair <laughs> All right. So John
0: Battelle, many things, many companies, decades of experience, but also the drummer for after. <laughs> John, thank you for coming on to our show. Absolutely. Thank Thanks, you for John. This me. was great. Thanks. Yeah. I have to tell you, Paul, usually when
1: I talk to people, I I sort of hone in on their deficiencies so I can feel better about myself. Didn't work today.
0: Battelle is a pretty bluff, handsome, consistent fellow. He's handsome. He, I bet maybe his toes are weird. Anyway, Who knows?
1: Everybody's got issues.
0: We're outside of the bonds of journalistic responsibility. We just interviewed a client. We went to his event <laughs> and we're talking about how handsome he is. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess we're not going to win the Pulitzer on this one, but, uh, but that really was, that's somebody who has been around since the beginning and, um, whatever the motivation is still in the game. Oh, and he's killing it, continues to kill it. So I, you know what I, the thing I got, we should tell people when John was pitching Nuco shift forum, you'd get an email and you'd be like, I don't know if I want to go to this. And then you get another one, like Two days later, and you'd be like, Well, maybe I should go to this. Well, then he kept the names kept dropping. Oh, man, this guy sold the hell out of that thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's a good reminder that, like, a little shamelessness and just pushing it, if you believe in it, goes a long way. Cause he certainly got us to pony up and go out to San Francisco. It worked. So there you go. That's a big lesson for today. This has been Track Changes, the podcast of Postlight, a digital product studio in New York City. We build apps that you might have on your phone we build web apps and we build big platforms and we design them and we make them beautiful so you should check us out on the internet at postlight.com but yeah even more so we'd love to hear from you if you have any questions send them to hello at postlight.com hello at postlight.com a very friendly email address we love to get your questions have a great
1: week everyone everybody work hard